Hello, my name's John Dennis. It's Monday the 22nd of March. Today, Americans get universal health care. Last night's vote in the House of Representatives saves Barack Obama's presidency. It's apparently going to become law now, and that's a law that several presidents going back nearly a century have tried to get on the books in one form or another and uh, have never been able to do. Whatever else uh, Barack Obama does or doesn't do in his uh, remaining years in office, this is a major, major achievement that's eluded many presidents. Also today, on the third day of a strike by BA cabin staff, how's it affecting passengers? We hear the view from Heathrow. I spoke to one woman who had a flight arranged for 10am this morning, but received an email saying it was cancelled from BA. She's desperate to get back to LAX, so she, she was quite annoyed. Conversely, there was a flight coming in from Aberdeen, uh, where people said, you know, it seemed like business as usual and you wouldn't know there was a, a strike going on. As BA and the unions continue their war of words, there's no sign of an end to the dispute. Unite has a strike to run. BA has an airline strike-breaking operation to run. So both sides are very much concentrating on the short term right now and, and will do today and probably might not turn their mind to the talks until um, perhaps later today, indeed tomorrow morning. Fifty years after the massacre that came to symbolise the injustice of apartheid, we return to Sharpville. When I went out, I had said... When we got there, people were shot. We went there and found people were lying all over the ground. It just rained there for 15 minutes. It rained mm. heavily. It washed all that blood. <laughs> and how the dramatic changes to Indian society are playing out in the country's coffee houses. The whole question is uh, which of these coffee houses is more representative? The uh, new air-conditioned one where you can get your cappuccino for about 50p or the old ones where you can still get a coffee for about 5p but you are not going to get any air conditioning and you're certainly not going to get a frappuccino, latte, choco, whatever. First, our top story. In the US, the House of Representatives has passed landmark health care reforms. Last night's vote means health coverage for 32 million more Americans. And it's a crucial victory for Barack Obama's presidency. Michael Tomaski is editor of Guardian America. I asked him how important last night's vote was. Very significant, uh, very historic. Uh, it's apparently going to become law now sometime in the next few days, and that's a law that several presidents going back nearly a century have tried to get on the books in one form or another and uh, have never been able to do. So, so yeah, I, whatever else uh, Barack Obama does or doesn't do in his uh, remaining years in office, this is a, uh, a major, major achievement that's eluded many presidents. And if the vote hadn't gone Obama's way, how bad would it have been for him? It would have been very bad for not only for him, but for the Democratic Party as a whole. Uh, I know there are, are a lot of predictions, and they may be correct, uh, uh, that passage of the bill will hurt the Democrats. Uh, it, it will hurt some Democrats in, in some of the more moderate or to conservative uh, districts. Some Democrats will pay a price for this, but I think it would have been much, much worse if they had failed to pass a bill. If they had spent uh, eight or nine months uh, working on this piece of legislation that, by the way, isn't, isn't the most important issue before the country right now, the most important issue before the country is the economy, 
if they had spent uh, eight or nine months working on this and uh, and come up with nothing, uh, I think there would have been a total bloodletting. Ultimately, was this healthcare bill worth the political capital that Obama has spent on it? That's a tricky question, and uh, I hate to duck it, but uh, I'm going to duck it because we can't we can't really know yet, and we won't know for a long time. Um, substantively, I think yes, it is worth it. I think uh, the American healthcare system is uh is a is a mess and and it's a very expensive bloated mess and we have to start doing something about it and this is uh certainly not going to solve every problem but it's but it at least starts that process substantively i think it's worth it uh in the long run but in the short run democrats in congress aren't going to want to do a big piece of progressive domestic legislation any time again in the near future. So this did take a lot of political capital and probably pushed a lot of other big issues off to the side because Democrats just aren't going to have the stomach to go through this kind of thing again. What difference will this make to ordinary Americans? To a lot of people, I don't think it's going to make all that much difference at all because the vast majority of people have uh, employer-sponsored health care in America. And for the majority who have that insurance and won't face a a catastrophic illness, it shouldn't really make that much difference at all, except that over time it should it should help control the rate at which uh, certain health care costs in, in this country rise. Now, for other people, uh, the 15% or so who are uninsured, this could make a very uh, dramatic difference in their lives. And, uh, and I think, uh, again, it will be basically a good one, but it, it also must be admitted that it's going to be a financial hardship for some people because people are going to have to buy insurance, uh, health care insurance, just the way that people now have to buy automobile insurance. Uh, it's just going to become a matter of law that you have to go buy it. The subsidies exist to help cushion that blow for people. But, you know, it's going to be a fairly significant expense that, that some families, lower-income families, who feel who go without insurance now because they feel they can't afford it, they're going to have to work into their budgets. But, you know, in the long run, it's, it's better that everyone, uh, particularly if you have children, is insured. Well, indeed. I mean, it's, it's hard for a lot of people in Britain with the National Health Service to, yeah. to understand why there was such strong opposition to universal health care in America. Uh, well, there's strong opposition because there we have a very strong conservative movement in this country and, and uh, they don't want taxation. They don't want government's role in anything expanded. And, you know, they their priorities... Uh, are in concert with the priorities of a lot of American corporations who have many, many, many millions of dollars to spend on this. Three and a half billion dollars was spent last year lobbying Congress. Not all of it on health care, but a significant chunk of it on health care. So, yeah, you know, if it were up to me, if I could wave a wand... Uh, we'd have a, a universal health care system that uh, that was based on taxation, uh, much like we have for our elderly population in the program we call Medicare. Um, but uh, something like that isn't going to happen in this country anytime soon, although I do think it will eventually happen someday. Michael Tomaski, and there's full coverage today at guardian.co.uk slash America. <laughs> It's the third day of a three-day strike by BA cabin crews. 
A further four-day walkout is due to start on Saturday. Flights have been grounded and customers left with their travel plans in tatters. And unions and management are showing no signs of willingness to negotiate. In a moment, we'll hear from our transport correspondent. But first, how is this strike affecting passengers? Joe Tunji reports from London's Heathrow Airport. Well, Heathrow's quite subdued at the moment. There are people in arrivals sort of lounging around waiting for flights. Um, I spoke to one woman who had a flight arranged for 10 a.m. this morning, um, but received an email saying it was cancelled from BA. Um, now, she said she was kind of really annoyed because she didn't get any more information except that she would have to fly on Tuesday. Um, and then a friend looked up and saw that they'd put on another flight um, for this afternoon, so she's turned up to catch that one. Um, she's desperate to get back to LAX, um, so she, she was quite annoyed. Conversely, there was a flight coming in from Aberdeen uh, where people said, you know, it seemed like business as usual and you wouldn't know there was a, a strike going on. Is it possible to, to know how effective BA has been in maintaining a service to passengers? The view from the sort of strike HQ, as they're calling it, is that, um, that it's not been so as successful as BA have been saying. Um, they point to a near, the nearby hangar with sort of lines of um, planes, you know, not being used. Um, and I spoke to one cabin crew member, and she said that the limited service that is being put on includes sort of not having hot meals, things like that. Um, and this was taking place on a flight that was actually full of crew. Um, and she also said that some of the people manning the limited uh, flights were, you know, have had three days training. And we've heard that, you know, pilots have been, have been trained up for three days to, to take over some of the duties, whereas normal cabin crew get at least six weeks. What's the mood like on the picket line? I mean, do they feel, the BA workers feel that their uh, strike is solid, that support for the strike is solid among Unite members? Um, very, very much so. Um, they, they're very, very determined and very loud. They feel very much like they've got a lot of support, um, even from cabin crew who've elected to work. Um, they say that some of those are scared of losing concessions, which, like travel concessions, which they've been threatened with. But there is, there is very sort of clear anti-Willie Walsh sentiment. So although they're against management, very much so against Willie Walsh, who they say are using, is using divide-and-conquer tactics. And they say that passengers who have been kind of, I suppose, hostile uh, haven't been able to really see their side of the story because they're so scared of talking to the media because they say staff have been suspended for doing so. Joe Adetunji in Heathrow. Well, is there any sign of the two sides getting round the negotiating table? Dan Milmo is our transport correspondent. Well, yesterday we, we heard Tony Woodley, the Joint General Secretary of Unite, uh, call on BA to get uh, back round the negotiating table. However, as, as I understood it yesterday evening, there were no moves to uh, get negotiations underway. If only because it's going to be a bit tricky to do that today because Tony Woodley is going to be touring the picket lines at Heathrow and Woody Walsh is um, going to be trying to get the best service possible um, out of Heathrow and Gatwick, as indeed he was doing at uh, BA's operational HQ yesterday. Which is right, because I mean, the union's saying that the industrial action has been effective in disrupting the flights, and BA's saying that it's managing to maintain a decent service. Is it possible to determine what's going on? You could probably say that those um, comments are uh, identical. Um, Unite has indeed disrupted BA service, because you can't say that operating a two-thirds um, service is, is not been disrupted. There are thousands of passengers who have uh, lost out. 
But nonetheless, BA says it has managed to get two-thirds of passengers away. So you could actually say that they're kind of singing from the same hymn sheet in a way. And what do you make of these efforts by Unite to get BA board members to intervene? Well, that's going to be quite a tricky strategy. But Unite certainly has a sense, they've not said it publicly, that perhaps there might be a bit of a split at boardroom level about BA strategy. Um, BA obviously denies this vehemently. Um, And indeed, Willie Walsh is a strong-willed figure, and it would be difficult to uh, imagine him being um, overruled by his board, or indeed if he was, for, for him to accept that. Now, there's a four-day strike, another four-day strike, scheduled to start on Saturday. And, but there's no, there's no fresh negotiations timetable between now and then. I mean, what's stopping them getting around the negotiating table? You've explained why, what's happening today, but uh, what's, what about between now and Saturday? Well, there's a couple of problems on that front. Um, first and most obviously, um, Unite has a strike to run. BA has an airline um, strike-breaking operation to run. So both sides are very much concentrating on the short term right now and and will do today and probably might not turn their mind to the talks until um, perhaps later today, indeed tomorrow morning. Secondly, um, uh, this wasn't too long ago, but if we can cast our mind back to Friday afternoon when um, the talks broke up, it was pretty acrimonious. Both sides were much further apart than indeed they were 10 days before. And that's a big problem. If there's that much distance between them, let's just say they start talking on Tuesday. Are they going to start agreeing a deal by Friday, i.e. within three or four days? I really doubt it. Now, there's an election looming, obviously. Labour's desperate to end this strike. Uh, We know that Gordon Brown's officials have been in touch with Tony Woodley and uh, Unite officials. Um, Is there much that the government can do to, to try and settle this dispute? I don't think so. Um, Unless uh, the government's got a a superb um, trade union um, dispute mediator who who they can parachute in and sort out what is actually underneath the surface quite a knotty series of um, negotiations. So otherwise, all the government can do is position themselves with voters and let it be absolutely clearly known that they don't agree with the strike. They're doing their best to get both sides back around the table and just take it from there. My name's John Dennis. You're listening to Guardian Daily. On the 21st of March 1960, in Sharpville, 30 miles south of Johannesburg, police opened fire on thousands of unarmed protesters. 69 people were killed and the massacre changed the course of South African history. It was the catalyst for decades of armed struggle and it forced the rest of the world to confront the injustice of apartheid. Rule by the white minority ended in 1994, but 50 years after the massacre, the trauma is still evident, as David Smith reports from Sharpville. At first glance, Sharpville, 30 miles from Johannesburg, is little different from hundreds of other townships in South Africa. But the name has become a milestone in the nation's history. Black people were forcibly relocated here from a nearby town by the white minority government. By 1960, Sharpville had only two tarred roads with electric lighting. On the 21st of March that year, people took to the streets to demonstrate against government pass laws that controlled their movements. Fifty years on, the number of survivors who can remember that day is dwindling, but the memories still run deep. Many saw their friends cut down by gunfire 
Ichabod Makiti was fortunate in that he left the demonstration at a crucial moment. What they did, they killed everyone. They shot people. 69 people were dead. More than 280 were injured. When we marched, they were saying to must go to the stadium. But there was football grounds and all that. But he said, no, hey, people don't go there because they are, these people are going to shoot him. Already he knew that they were going to be shot. Was it a policeman who a was policeman, yes, yes. He was staying here in Sharville also, but okay. he felt that something is going to happen because there were already Saracens coming in. There were three airplanes flying over here, yes. very low. Mm. And he said, hey, people, don't go up there. Mm. I was hungry at the time. I said, no, let me just go home and have something to eat, then I'll go up. Mm. The time when I went out, I had said, When we got there, people were shot. We went there, we found people were lying all over the ground. Because now, there was a cloud, a black cloud. It just rained there for 15 minutes, it rained heavily. Immediately after the shooting? After the shooting, when people were lying there, it rained. It washed all that blood. No, no. <laughs> Do you know why they started shooting? Was the no, moment? it was just out of the book because nobody, because they, what they said, they said people were throwing stones. Nobody threw a stone. It was peaceful, peaceful march, so we could put it that it was peaceful. Do you think the police just panicked? Yeah, I think they panicked because of the mob, because they couldn't imagine so many people, about more than 20,000 people cramped at the police station, so they just shot. Were the people um, silent or talking or, or singing? No, they were talking because there were airplanes flying around. So people were happy, some of them. Actually, they were taking off their heads, throwing them up, and would say, Isoleto, Isoleto. So jubilation around, there was nothing, anything that was, the people were angry that they were going to fight. Because they were waiting for the answer, and the answer came with the bullet. Sharpville was a defining moment for black South Africans. It preempted decades of armed struggle and focused the world's attention on the iniquity of racial apartheid. That system collapsed in 1994, and it was no accident that the country's first black president, Nelson Mandela, signed the new constitution in Sharpville two years later. But political freedom does not necessarily equal economic freedom for the residents of Sharpville. They complain that basic services remain virtually unchanged since the apartheid era. Last month, they took to the streets. The anger has led to the formation of a group, the concerned residents of Sharpville, whose leaders include Hofni Masesi. On the 23rd, we had a, a stay away from work, where people decided not now. In order that we should try to attract the attention of at least higher authorities than the councils. Well, that was the day on which some tires were banned. We had clashes with police. Some people were shot at, some with rubber bullets. We have one case of a person who was shot with live ammunition. It blurs the difference between the apartheid government and our government. In fact, it's even worse because today we are an electorate, but we still get almost the same kind of treatment. We deserve more. David Smith reporting. Guardian Daily on guardian.co.uk. 
Some of India's traditional coffee houses have been forced to close, victims of the radical changes in Indian society over recent decades. I asked our Delhi correspondent, Jason Burke, to describe a typical Indian coffee house. Well, this is exactly the question. Um, what is a typical Indian coffee house? Until about 10 years ago, it was fairly easy to say. Uh, they were fairly grotty places in some ways, though full of uh, local colour and charm. Uh, a coffee would have cost you about 5p. Uh, food ranging from sort of limp omelettes through to um, great piles of biryani, probably cooked several hours before. Um, rudimentary uh, hygienic conditions, no air condition. Uh, air conditioning and a lot of noise Uh, but recently we've had a whole range of new coffee houses much more like the modern ones uh, cafe uh, society developing in India there are hundreds of them now they're doing well and the whole question is uh, which of these coffee houses is more representative Uh, the uh, new air-conditioned one where you can get your cappuccino for about 50p or the old ones where you can still get a coffee for about 5p um, but you are not going to get any air conditioning and you're certainly not going to get a frappuccino, latte, choco, whatever. Is this a classic case of traditions being swept aside by the new globalised India with its emerging middle class? That was my idea when I set out researching the story. I thought this was going to be the same old story, globalisation, India, aspirant middle classes, all the rest of it. Now, it's certainly true that some of the old coffee houses have fallen on very hard times. Uh, Visiting them, it's not really surprising. They're pretty unpleasant places. They've had no investment for years. They're badly located. Um, They stink quite often. Uh, They're really not very nice. Then you go to the kind of new places, which are cold Uh, which is great at the moment because the temperatures are now beginning to get hot. It's uh, late spring. They are clean and they are full of happy young (coughs) Indian middle class. That was my view. But then I went to a few more coffee houses and found that actually quite a lot of them are doing very well. Those that are better positioned, uh, those that are right next to a university, for example, uh, are thriving, uh, full of people, full of noise, full of discussion and full of 5p coffees both of these elements coexist you can have the new aspirant globalized coffee houses but really they're just as one of the uh, marketing managers for one of the big brands here said they're just scratching the surface and actually the real middle class is the one that we don't really take much notice of which is middle class by indian standards rather than by western standards and it's huge and it's full of the kind of kids who can afford a 10p coffee, which their parents probably couldn't have done, uh, but certainly can't afford a 50p coffee. And they're the people who are still going to the standard old coffee houses. If people listening to Guardian Daily and want to go and sample a traditional coffee house in India, do they need to get over there fast before they all disappear? Yeah, but, but this is it. I mean, I don't think they do. I think uh, a lot of the coffee houses are doing pretty well. At least that's what uh, I'm being told and that's what I saw. I mean, some of them are certainly closing, but other ones are doing well. And coffee drinking is increasing rapidly in India. The future, I think, will see a convergence of these two trends. I mean, I think you will see an Indian coffee house, which is a mixture that has the best of both, which is affordable, comfortable, but still has, has local character. I think you'll see the indigenization, if you like, of the European imported idea of coffee houses. And relatively rapidly too. I don't think that's going to take too long. Jason Burke in Delhi. Today's edition of Guardian Daily was produced by Chris Wade and Tim Maybe. My name's John Dennis. Thank you for listening. Guardian Daily. News and reports from around the world.